bold hands. It's like, well, July 5th is here, time for Christmas season, right? So Christmas trees are unique, though, in that they are the appearance of beauty and life. And the reason why we use them is because they represent the evergreen, right? The tree that's green all year round. But that's kind of an ironic statement in a way, right? Because a Christmas tree, though it looks alive and represents life, is actually, it's actually dead, right? It has the appearance of life, but it really isn't alive. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus's last public sermon in Matthew 23. His last public sermon is dealing with hypocrisy. It's his sermon where he looks at the Pharisees and he has a lot of really hard things to say to them. It's, it's without a doubt his harshest sermon. And it's to the most religious group of people in the land. And in part, it's because they have the appearance of the whole Christmas tree. They look alive. They talk as if they're alive. But at the end of the day, they're actually dead. And Christmas trees, you know, if it was just the fact that they're really dead but look alive, no one would really even think about it. But the second category is this. Occasionally, Christmas trees burst into flames and burn houses down, right? There is a couple houses burned down every year. I'll move on from the slide because it is a bit uh, distracting, what I say. Does anyone know how long it takes for a Christmas tree to catch on fire and get out of control? Less than 30 seconds. 25 is about the average. The danger of hypocrisy is not only do you look alive but really are not, but the danger is it can actually have negative impact on all those around. It's not just that, but that hypocrisy can create issues in other people. It can create uh, just death, forms of death in a community and in an individual. So for a minute, I'm gonna give you 30 seconds a minute. It's a thought experiment. I want you to think of the most recent time you experienced hypocrisy. Uh, I'm not gonna have you share with your neighbor which I normally do because, you know, maybe your neighbor is the person that was the most recent person you experienced hypocrisy with. But I really, I really want you to come up with an actual mental picture, okay? The most recent time or strongest example in your recent memory of experiencing hypocrisy. And I'll give you a, a second to think about that. Everyone have a mental picture, all right? Everyone have a time, an example where hypocrisy was revealed to you or you saw around you. Now, here's the next question. Were you the example of the hypocrisy or was it somebody else, okay? So I'm not gonna have you necessarily raise your hands, but in your mind, was the hypocrisy somebody else being a hypocrite or was the first example your hypocrisy? And if you're like the average person guess what our examples of hypocrisy inevitably are? Other people, right? Other people's hypocrisy, not our own. But I think if I ask the question slightly differently, can you think of the most recent time that you were hypocritical? Could you come up with an example? And just the way the hypocrisy works, we see it in other people very, very easily. We have a very, very hard time seeing it from within. And the danger is, in some ways, the more religious we are, the longer we've been in the church, the easier certain forms of hypocrisy can grow within us. And like that Christmas tree, catch on fire. And so Jesus is going to confront hypocrisy very, very directly. But here's the thing I'm gonna do that's a little different. I'm actually gonna read the last couple verses of Matthew 23 before we look at the beginning, because this sermon is super harsh, but it comes from heartbreak. It is not Jesus 
just writing a random sermon about hypocrisy. It comes from a place of heartbreak and longing. And here's what we see in the last couple of verses, right? Just listen to the, to the longing in Jesus's words, all right? This is how he concludes his sermon. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent, were sent to you. How often I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see the longing there? How I longed to gather you as children, but you were unwilling. And he's talking primarily about the influence of the Pharisees on the entire nation, not just the Pharisees, but what they had created. And so Jesus is going to be very, very direct here. He has some very hard things to say, and he's going to say them directly to the face of the Pharisees in a a very offensive way. But I just don't want us to lose the heart behind the harshness, especially for those of us who have experienced harsh words and it didn't come from a place of love. This comes from a place of love. And the reason why Jesus has to be so harsh is because if you're gentle with a hypocrite, they don't see it. They can't see it. We can't see it. It has to be direct and there has to be examples. And so Jesus is going to do more than just give one or two. He's going to give seven. And we're only going to look at six of them because one of the longer examples, he doesn't actually call them a hypocrite. So we're going to skip that one and just focus on all the ones that deal with hypocrisy specifically. All right. So again, not a, not a comfy sermon, at least I hope, not a comfy sermon for us this morning. Uh, I really want us to be reflecting on our own hearts. Is it possible that I would identify more with the Pharisee than with a tax collector? And for me personally, I think I, I was sharing this with the high school teachers because that's what inspired the sermon. Um, I would identify with a Pharisee way easier. I would have way more comfortability with a Pharisee because they believe the Bible, they go to church regularly, they try to be moral, and that would be much easier than spending time with a tax collector and a prostitute whose lifestyle and way of life would be so foreign to me, it would be very uncomfortable. And so on one level, I'm hoping that as we see these things, we see ourselves as potential Pharisees and not, not be looking at this sermon for those out there who are, who are hypocritical and Pharisees, all right? So in Matthew 23, we're gonna take a look at, his, at the last public sermon, all right? It's unique that his last public sermon and his last miracle are going to both deal with hypocrisy. And so we will take a look at verse, starting with verse 13, the first of the seven woes, all right? The first of the seven woes. He says this, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven "'in men's faces,' You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Now, I want to start off with what hypocrisy is not, okay? Hypocrisy is one of those, like, very broad words that we can throw around very easily, but it's, it, can be, it can be misunderstood. And so one thing I, I want to say is hypocrisy is not doing the right thing when you don't want to. That's not being a hypocrite, right? Doing the right thing when you don't want to, what do we call that? discipline, perseverance, faithfulness, you know, like all these great traits. And how many of you have had things you have to do that you don't want to do? Wow, some of you have really easy lives because I didn't see everyone raise their hands, right? It's like doing things we don't want to do is a part of life. And it can be easy to assume that you're doing something you don't want to do and you're doing it anyway Well, you're a hypocrite. Well, no, not necessarily, not necessarily at all. So it's not that. Um, not only that, hypocrisy is not calling another person to do something you're unable to do yourself. 
if that was the case, how many sermons from up here would never be preached? If I'm calling you to do something that I don't perfectly do, right? Or Pastor Jeff calls or Tom calls for us to be honest or to be hardworking or to read our Bibles and knowing that the pastor, the preacher, isn't always going to do the thing that is being called to. Why is that not hypocrisy? And one of the reasons is, is the awareness. I am aware that I am prone to hypocrisy. I am prone to lying. I am prone to lust. I am prone to whatever sin category we're addressing. And you know that I am not perfect in this category, nor am I calling you to anything beyond what I'm, I'm unable to do myself. And so again, it's not, it's, not pre it's not necessarily a lack of practicing what we preach because none of us can consistently practice what we preach. The question is, are we aware of those issues and are we disingenuous when we do speak? Are we aware of our own failures in that? So again, that's not necessarily hypocrisy either. So what is hypocrisy? And Jesus is going to kind of start to lay out for us. The word hypocrite in the Greek is actor. So the most basic definition of hypocrisy is an actor. Uh, and Jesus is going to use that phrase, six out of the seven woes. And I did a little bit of research. If you get bored sometime, I will give you the names of the researchers, Crisp and Cowton. So you can write that down, look it up. They came up with basically four types of hypocrisy that people recognize very easily. And we're going to see in this sermon, all the types of hypocrisy show up in the lives of the Pharisees. And I'm hoping that we'll see examples of hypocrisy within ourselves. The first is direct inconsistency. What we say clearly does not match what we do. So the boss requires that in meetings, you cannot be on your phone, and yet your boss is constantly on their phone, right? Direct inconsistency, saying something that doesn't gel and doesn't line up. Um, so that's an example. That's one we think of very quickly. The second one is the double standard. The double standard is there's a standard out there that I hold more rigor rigorously for others than for myself or for my group. All right, and I don't think I have to give too much in the examples of double standards. We hear about those all the time. You know, so how many of us agree that being on our screens is probably not the best thing? All right, how many of us would enforce this on our children? How many of us would not hold ourselves to the same exact standard that we agree is probably not great, right? Yeah, you guys are a very honest group. I appreciate that. Um, the second kind of double standard would be, you know, I think I saw this a lot when presidents use executive order. When it's your candidate in the White House, we're okay with the use of executive order. When it's the other candidate in the White House, we're not okay with the executive order, right? And it's just part of, it's going my way, so I kind of like it. Not going my way, I don't really like it. Double standard. Number three, pretense. Pretense is the appearance of pretending to have certain traits in order to get something from you. Pretense works a lot. We're going to see that with the Pharisees. It can appear to be religious in order to get a seat of honor. You know, it could be agreeing with you about whatever your opinion is because you happen to be paying for dinner. And I don't want to get to the end of the conversation and we had a huge fight over whatever issue and you're not paying for my dinner anymore. So it's easier just to be like, yeah, of course I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> Check, please. <laughs> Give it to that guy. Right, pretense. And number four, complacency. This one surprised me. Um, because I wouldn't have thought of this as hypocrisy, and yet it's one of the strongest examples we see within the context of the Pharisees. Complacency is meeting all the easy obligations, but avoiding the more difficult central ones to the organization. So I just asked Mr. Estes and the fire company, to be part of the fire company, you have to go to 10% of calls, one out of 10. 
that would be, for me, that would still be a really, really intense decision to join. But for Mr. Estes, that's not, right? There are those in the fire company that go to how many of the calls? 90, 95% of them. But to be part of the fire company, you really only have to go to 10, right? So that person who's like bare minimum, meeting the bare minimum, but avoiding the more difficult, painful parts is in a sense operating hypocritically. We're going to see this with the Pharisees in this text. It says that they're going to to tithe all the way down, 10% of all their stuff, all the way down to their spice rack. Literally, they went through everything they owned down to 10% of their spices. And yet Jesus says, you're willing to obey the, ten, the tithe command, but you're not willing to obey the command to pursue justice and faithfulness to the people around you. Now, again, tithing is important. Which one's more important, tithing your spices or pursuing justice? And it's easy to do one, so we focus on that as a big deal. Hard to do the other, so we downplay it. Jesus calls that hypocrisy, as we're going to see. So here we get to our first one. The, the hypocrite here is this. Woe to you teachers, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom in the face of others. Okay, I'm going to skip that point. Come to this next one. Uh, adding and subtracting from Jesus. When Jesus calls these people and says, you shut the door in the faces of people, it's because they're ultimately jealous of Christ. Who is the kingdom bringer in the context of Matthew's gospel? Who brings the kingdom? Jesus brings the kingdom. What are the Pharisees jealous of? Jesus. So they try to do everything they can to keep the people from running to him. Now, just keep this in mind. Pharisees could not drive out demons very effectively. They could not resurrect the dead. They could not bring healing. They could not feed the poor. Jesus does all of those things. And yet when the Pharisees see Jesus doing those things, instead of saying, that's amazing, I'm so glad that the the poor are being fed, I'm so glad that the needs are being met, they're jealous that the people are starting to follow Jesus more than them. And so Jesus says, you're shutting the door of the kingdom in the faces of people. You won't enter. You won't believe in me. And we'll talk about why that's ironic in just a minute. But not only do you refuse to believe, you're literally keeping other people from belief by bad-mouthing me and saying, I'm filled with demons. You know, that's what their answer was to Jesus's miracles. He's a demonic person. And so he says, this is a problem, right? And so for us, is there areas in our lives where we're shutting the door of the kingdom in the face of people in part because maybe they're going in a direction we don't really like? You see, Jesus challenges every single person he ever encountered from his own disciples to the most religious people. And it's easy to make Jesus who we want him to be and not allow him to actually confront us in the areas that matter most. And the Pharisees refused to let Jesus confront them, at least in, a, in the right kind of way. They, sh- they closed the door. But more than that, they closed the door for others. And Jesus is now going to build on that point by talking about part two. He says the second will in verse, in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. (laughs) Again, you notice Jesus is not pulling any punches here. And here's here's the danger from his perspective. The Pharisees are, are working very, very hard to get people to follow their way of life. And in doing that, the teacher makes the student but the student's going to take the teacher's message and go much, much further with it than ever would have been intended. And here's the reason why. The Pharisees are not starting with the scriptures. The Pharisees are starting with their teaching. 
which means the, the next generation isn't looking at Jesus or the scriptures. They're looking at their teacher's idea, their teacher's interpretation, their teacher's way of life. And that leads to all kinds of furthering of extreme teachings that the original person would have never even comprehended as possible. So here we have a picture of Nietzsche. He is a very famous theologian, if you can call an atheist a theologian, uh, in the 1800s. And he believed in basically two major ideas. The first is he's the one who made famous the phrase, God is dead. Now, he didn't believe that God literally died. He believed that our need for God had died. We in Western culture don't need him anymore. But this also led to his second major teaching called the Superman and not the wearing the red cape Superman. That would be one thing. I would love Nietzsche if that was the case. Unfortunately, he created the concept of the Superman that said this, now that we know there is no God, where do all morals come from? Look at your neighbor from them. Morals are entirely created by culture and society. So the Superman is the person who recognizes that morals aren't real. They're just made up by the people around you. And the Superman can live above those morals and walk with no guilt, no conscience, no laws, no ethics, and no morality. Because all of those things are made up and not real. So you could do what you want. And who cares what culture tells you? Because where did the rules come from in the first place? Culture. There's no divine order. There's no divine presence to these things. Live above the morals. Pursue power. Do what you want. And Nietzsche believed that. And it did drive him insane. I think most scholars would say trying to actively live that way was impossible. But guess who took Nietzsche's philosophy and applied it? That guy. He, he loved Nietzsche. He hung on every single word that Nietzsche wrote. Now, I'm pretty sure Hitler was born around the time that Nietzsche was dying, I think, if my history serves correctly. But Nietzsche was read by Hitler, and Hitler took the idea of the Superman, and he applied it to the Nazi party directly. And 11 million innocent people later, in a world war, people finally recognized, if this is true, this is horrible. Now, Nietzsche would have never gone Hitler's route. But you see what happened here? Hitler took Nietzsche's teachings and went way further with it. And the same thing happens with the Pharisees. The same thing can happen with us. If we are not careful to do this constantly, teaching the next generation, it's not what I think about the current situation or about movies or about whatever. What matters? This. This is our foundation. This will bring us back when my theology starts to go askew or my philosophy starts to go askew. So one of the things I hope for us, especially those of us who have influence with the next generation, it's not what I think about things. It's what this says about things. Because then if the students and our kids and the people underneath of us are constantly coming back to the word, then they can look at the foundation and be like, oh, Mr. Justice taught this, and maybe that's not consistent with what Jesus says here. And that will keep them from going off on crazy paths based on something that I said casually. And that is what Jesus is reprimanding the Pharisees for because they did not care. They just wanted, they wanted converts, 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 converts. It didn't matter. And Jesus says, because of that, you're making them twice as condemnable as you are. And that's saying something, right? That's saying something for Jesus to, to challenge them in this way. So one of the dangers for us is to allow Jesus to critique us 
um, and to not try to force thoughts on people that are not necessarily from Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have our opinions and we shouldn't have our convictions, but there are convictions that are divine and there are convictions that are personal. And, you know, Romans 13, 14 deals with that. We're not going to jump into that today. But I remember growing up in my church and what kind of music you listen to, your perspective on tattoos, you know, that was like more important than almost anything. And I'm like, okay, tattoos and, you know, Backstreet Boys, is that really the thing that keeps you out of the kingdom of God? And I don't think anyone would have directly stated that, but it was kind of subtly suggested. And again, again, should you have an opinion about tattoos and the Backstreet Boys? Yes, especially about the Backstreet Boys. No, I'm just kidding. But at the time, I just remember thinking like, wow, so this is the thing. And it, no, it's not the thing. The most important thing is who Jesus says he is. And in one sense, he demands more from us than what we think he demands. He demands not just that I be careful about what I listen to, but he says, be careful where your heart goes. I want all of you, not just your musical choices. I want all of you. And it's not so much about the tattoo. It's I want your life, all of you. And again, it's sometimes easy to kind of emphasize the shallow, superficial things. And then it creates in this attitude for younger people be like, well, I don't listen to the Backstreet Boys and I don't have a tattoo. I must be fine. And that leads us right to where the Pharisees were. And that's the danger. That's the danger because these seeds grow in us. And here's my last point before we move on to the next set of woes. Hypocrisy, I think, is really an identity crisis. It's wanting to be part of a community. It's wanting to be viewed a certain way. And I'm willing to throw kind of deception in front of you to keep you from seeing the real me. And one of the things the gospel does is it says, if you are in Christ, you have a new identity. And it's, it's a son and daughter of God. And what other people see or don't see is not the focus. What matters most is what's going on inside the heart. And that's where he's going to begin to challenge us. So we think about the issues of identity for us. Have you ever thought about where your hypocrisy really might be tied to a, a struggle with who you are in Christ, trying to appear something that you're not, or trying to direct the attention in a way that gives you credit and doesn't really focus on Christ? And if that's the case, then Jesus wants to shake that identity issue because the Pharisees found their whole role in being the religious leaders that everyone looked up to. And Jesus is like, no, it's not about looking to you. It's about looking to me. And that was hard for them. It shook their identity. It shook their role within their community. And that was hard. But they, and they were, and many of them were unwilling to let that happen. They were unwilling to let their identity be shaken to its core. And let's be honest, self-protection is pretty natural for us. It is very, very hard to be open and vulnerable to critique. And when it comes from Jesus, it's the best critique ever but it's, it's painful and it's hard. And the Pharisees, for the most part, really didn't want to hear it. They did not like what he had to say. All right, so we now move on to the rotten fruit that flows out of hypocrisy. All right, so again, I said we're going to skip one of them. Uh, if you take a look at verse 16 down through 22, it's his longest example. We're not going to focus on that one, uh, in part because Jesus doesn't specifically say this is hypocrisy, and I'm trying to keep it you know, focused. So we're going to look at verse 23. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, 
but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And so here he starts to unpack a little bit some of the outworkings of the problems from within the heart and how that's going to work. You see, the Pharisees were tasked with two things by themselves. The Pharisees kind of, they grew, they grew up probably about 150 years before Jesus's time. There were no Pharisees in the Old Testament. That title did not exist. It grew up during the time when Israel was desperately looking for a savior because they were surrounded by all kinds of powerful nations that were overwhelming them. The Greeks, the Persians, the Romans. And the Pharisees kind of grew up and said, the only way that this is going to change is if two things happen. One, Israel needs to get its act together religiously. And two, when the Messiah shows up, we need to see him quickly and follow him. You see the irony here? The Pharisees looked at themselves as the ones responsible for identifying the Messiah when he appeared on the scene. And what's the first thing they try to do as soon as he shows up? Kill him. And so this is their job. This is what they tasked themselves with. And so they're like, we need to be religiously ready. And that's why they focused on all the laws, tithing all of their stuff, as Jesus would challenge them to. But at the same time, it's easy to give 10% for some of us. And it's much, much harder to give everything. And so one of the, one of the challenges, uh, and I, I use this for the teacher's example, which is easier to do, to write a check to try to help poverty in our area or to actively get involved in places that deal with impoverished people? And if I, for me, if I'm honest with myself, much easier to write a check, right? Much easier to write a check. And notice what Jesus says at the end of this woe. It's not that you don't tithe. It's not that you don't go through your spice cabinet necessarily. He's like, don't give up tithing, but don't think that that replaces the deeper core value of justice. This will lead to giving. You can give and never care about justice or poverty at all. Any of us can do that. And so Jesus is challenging them here. He's like, you have the, the fruit, the outward appearance of being generous and trying to be religious and holy, but on the inside, there is no desire for the thing that's supposed to be in the heart that which your desire to help the poor would flow. You don't have that on the inside, and that's the problem. And so now he's going to move to some of his more, his more famous examples. Cleaning the outside of the cup. So here's where he moves on to number five. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Uh, who, who's my people who hate dishes? Everyone just laughs because most all of us hate dishes. If you have to clean a dish, though, where do you start? The inside. Right? I don't do dishes much. Melody will attest to this fact. I hate them. But even, even me, who doesn't do dishes very often, when I start, I start with the inside. Because if you get the inside clean, the outside kind of naturally follows. How ridiculous would it be if you have this cup, you clean the outside real nice, put it back up on the, and I have a feeling some of you might have done this at some point, probably at your work environment. You just kind of put it back so that it looks fine when you pass by, but the inside is just not done well. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's like, the outward appearance is your focus. You want to make sure the cup is polished and clean 
and nice, and on the inside, it's full of disgusting things. Because as soon as you picked up that cup to pour something in, how gross is that? It doesn't matter what the outside looks like. It's what's on the inside that's going to ultimately matter. And again, he says if you clean the inside, you remove the desire for self-indulgence, which is what he calls out here. You naturally will become a kinder person on the outside. And in one way, it's even easier because now you're not really trying to, to you know, modify your appearance. You're just seeking to let Jesus clean you and let that naturally just start to work itself out. But again, the Pharisees were not concerned with the inside. They were concerned with their appearance to people on the outside. They wanted the clean cup. They didn't care what the, as long as I kept the inside on the inside, right? All the junk that's in my heart, as long as that's inside of me and not spilling out at work, no problem. And Jesus says, no, that's a huge problem. Eventually, the inside will pour out of you. And then we say things like, I didn't mean it. That wasn't the real me. No, maybe it really was the real you. It's just the lack of sleep allowed the real you to pop out, right? Or maybe the frustrations of the 15 things that led up to the explosion allowed the real you to pop out. And Jesus is like, you focus on the inside, the outside will take care of itself just naturally. And now he's going to move on to his sixth one, the contamination of hypocrisy. Uh, I run a decent amount and I regularly startle people and animals. So when there's older women walking on my road um, over here on Schultzville where I run, I always try to like make some noise because I can't tell you how many older people have like done one of these numbers when I come, you know, running beside them. So I'm always like, you know, just so they hear me coming and don't freak out. But when it comes to animals, I encounter three different kinds of animals on my run. There's the animals that are entirely normal. And when a raccoon or whatever is actually startled, what does it do? Runs away. There's the second kind of animal, which is a little more disconcerting. And that's the animal that doesn't run away when I start coming closer to it. And then I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I run with pepper spray now because of dogs on my run, right? So if they come at me and not running away, I'm ready for it. But there's a third kind of animal I encounter on my run. It's the most common form of animals I encounter on my run. Any guesses? I'll just show you a picture. <laughs> roadkill. That is my most common form of animal that I encounter on my run. It's roadkill. And, you know, go back to this one. Cute raccoon. Bushy, you know, beady little eyes. Got the whole little raccoon face going. Very cute. When you see one on your run or your walks, you're like, aw, it's a cute raccoon. What's the difference? It's still a raccoon. It's still bushy. It still has the mask and the beady eyes. It is, it's dead. And isn't that unique? That the same animal that at one point we would think is cute and neat suddenly looks disturbing and disgusting because of one difference. It's dead. And here's where Jesus comes to his second to last major point with the Pharisees. So look what he says to them. Verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He's like, you have the appearance of being a cute living raccoon. But when people get close enough to see the real you, you aren't. And in ancient culture, they would whitewash tombs uh, around Jerusalem because, uh, in, you know, tombs were not underground, they're caves. And so people would use caves all the times for all kinds of things. But one of the dangers 
is you could become spiritually unclean for seven days if on your way to the temple, you encountered a dead body or came anywhere near one. And so one of the ways they would protect the travelers is they would whitewash all the tombs so that two things would happen. One, it would look a little nicer. And two, it would be a warning to everyone around, like stay away, there's dead bodies over here. And if you wanna be able to enter the temple, you cannot come in contact with this. Because the idea is this, the dead things from within corrupt and can, can contaminate the, those who are on the outside that encounter. And so he's looking at these Pharisees. He's like, you're whitewashed. You appear to be clean. You appear to be nice. You appear to be a cute raccoon. But really, the fruit of your life is death. And anyone who comes in contact with you is impacted by you. And again, for me personally, this one, is, this one strikes pretty close to home because as a teacher, what I say carries weight sometimes. Sometimes I wish certain things I said carried more weight, but it's always the random comment that I make off the cuff that sinks deep into the hearts of people. And I'm like, and you probably all had those experiences. And here's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees have a contaminating effect on those around them. And it's not even necessarily obvious, right? You know, the one dead giveaway of, de of roadkill for me, besides the fact I have to like run around it, the smell. And Jesus says that there's a stench that goes with Pharisees. And Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 2, the stench of hypocrisy can actually lead people away from God in the first place. He says God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the hypocrisy of religious people in their lives. That's a danger. Again, the Christmas tree catching on fire is more than just the tree goes up. Things around it goes up. And Jesus is going to bring that very strong, very harsh statement to the Pharisees. Because again, if he's not harsh, they may miss it. And his real hope is that they would repent and change. And he would say hard things to us sometimes, not because he wants to hurt our feelings primarily, but because sometimes hurt feelings are the only thing that might make me actually look at my own heart in the first place. And so he's, he's really hard here. And he has one more harsh statement to give. Here's what he says in verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. And then he goes on to call them snakes and vipers and things along those lines. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery the belief that if I lived back then, I would be different than the people of that time. And so sometimes in our generation, we can look back and be like, well, if I lived, okay, so if some of you did live in the 60s, I have not. It's like, if I lived in the South in the 60s, I would have been marching with King. Maybe, probably not. If I lived in 1930s Germany, I would have been part of the secret underground against Hitler. Maybe, but probably not. We have a tendency to look at past wrongs with the perspective that I'm above those past wrongs. This is a specific issue with progressives a lot, right? To assume that they would not do the things that others have done if they were there. And Jesus is challenging the Pharisees here. He's like, no, yeah, your forefathers killed Zechariah, but don't think for a second you wouldn't have been there to kill Zechariah. And how can he make that statement? This is on Monday before his execution when he preaches the sermon. 
Ever thought about the fact that people who are like, I would never kill a prophet who predicted the coming of the Messiah. Kill the Messiah. Four days later. This group of people are going to be the ones to cast their vote against Jesus. So here's, our, here's where we can settle here for a second, right? We can't see where we are easily. And one of the things that Jesus is challenging us to do is not to think about what I would do in X, Y, and Z scenario. What am I doing in my current place in history? And am I seeking the good of the people around me? And am I seeking the coming of the kingdom? And not to feel too good about what I would or would not do in some hypothetical situation if I lived in Germany in the 1930s. What places of bravery do I have to stand today and focus right there and be very, very careful about how I judge previous generations and the choices that they made in the moment? Because, of course, C.S. Lewis makes this point, chronological snobbery assumes we've made it to the pinnacle of, like, society without realizing that, what, 30 years from now, some generation is going to look back on the 2020s and be like, I can't believe they fill in the blank. And the fill in the blank is probably something we aren't even aware we're doing. And so one of the things here is to be very, very careful about how easily we judge other cultures and their decisions and how they make things. So what do we do? Hopefully we're all kind of like a little uncomfortable here, I hope. Because again, the Pharisees uh, are not the only ones with the problem. So on the same day that Jesus preaches this sermon, go back uh, two chapters to chapter 21. The last miracle that he does outside of resurrection from the dead is in Matthew 21, all right? Same day, in the morning before he preaches this sermon in Matthew 21, here's what we're told starting in verse 18. Early in the morning, as he was on his way to the city to ultimately preach this sermon, uh, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And if you read Mark's Gospels, it tells us he wither, it, the tree withered from what? Does anyone remember Mark's Gospel this well? From the roots up. All right, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did this fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt... Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say this to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And Jesus is giving a teaching here, but it's centered on hypocrisy. Um, he kills this fig tree because it is leafy, and granted, it's in a time frame when the figs weren't supposed to even have fruit on it, but it has the appearance of having fruit. It's like a precursor of what the rest of the harvest is supposed to be. So Jesus is hungry. He's looking for some substance before he goes into this very long, busy day. He walks over to the fig tree, finds no figs on it, and he curses it. And it's an image of him cursing hypocrisy, the appearance of life and fruit and help to people who need it until you get close enough, and then there is no help. There's just more weight put on you. And again, it's unique here that Jesus preaches or does this like visual aid. It's the only time he ever kills anything in the New Testament. Gospels, and it happens to be a picture of hypocrisy. And here's the ironic or unique thing. He does this in the presence of who? A group of hypocritical Pharisees? His disciples. Because what's potential for them? Hypocrisy. He wants them to be very, very aware. Hypocrisy is not just a thing out there. Hypocrisy is a potential thing 
in here. And just because we follow Christ does not mean hypocrisy can't find its root in us. He does this last miracle for their benefit. And then he says, the way you overcome this is through prayer and faith, which we're now going to jump into. So he curses this fig tree. He does so in the presence of his disciples to basically say, we Christians are no different potentially than Pharisaical Jews living 2,000 years ago. And the same warning can be relevant for us. And here's the thing that I love. The person who experienced some of the most radical changes was a former Pharisee. Jesus is out to save Pharisees. Now, they have a harder road, I think, often than the, te- than the prostitute or the tax collector, but he's trying to grab their attention. And Paul calls himself, in Philippians chapter 3, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's like, they're your normal Pharisee. And then there was me. And Jesus saved him. And he is going to have a lot to say about self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Why? Because he found himself admired in it and he couldn't get out without grace. And so here's what I just want to show. Some of the, the, teachings of G, uh, the teachings of Paul about being a Pharisee. The first one is the preaching of the gospel. All right, the gospel tells us this. We are doomed, but we are so loved. We can't save ourselves, but there's one who's willing to pay everything to save us. And the, the preaching of the gospel has to sometimes be very hard and very direct. And it needs to start with my own heart. It needs to start internally. So when we preach the gospel of self-righteousness, or when we preach the gospel, it fights self-righteousness. Most of us and most religions build our ideas off of this. I do good things to be made right with God. I do good things. I pursue sanctification to be ultimately justified. What does the gospel do? Inverts them. I am declared righteous and loved. I am justified. Therefore, I can pursue sanctification. I can start to do good things. It's not I do good and God's pleased with me. It's God loved me, says I'm his kid, and is pleased with me, and now I start to do these good things. And Paul's going to be the one to really hammer that home because he lived his whole early life believing if I do good things, eventually I will be right. I will feel right with the world and right with God and right with myself. And he said in the back of his mind, he always knew he wasn't right. He needed something. And when Jesus shows him the way, it changed everything for him. So how does hypocrisy die? How do we kill it from the root? The gospel. The gospel that says it does not matter how you appear to other people. It doesn't matter what your community thinks of you. What matters most is what God thinks of you, and he loves you enough to send his son to die for you. What more do you need? You're a kid in his kingdom. Live that way. And all the works and all the things that will come out of that will be good and pleasing to him and not a substitute for him. So when he confronts people, and I'll I'll make this brief, he he preaches the gospel to them. I was going to go through, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But if you want to write this down, I'll give you a couple texts and passages out of Galatians where Paul really comes against hypocrisy with the gospel. The first is when he's preaching to the, the Galatian church in chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. He challenges them to look at the gospel that was preached to them. And then he confronts Peter. And this part I love. Peter was living hypocritically. He had gone to the church in Galatia, had spent time with a bunch of Gentiles, had 
eaten dinner with them and preached the gospel to them. And then a bunch of Jewish Christians show up. And what does Peter do? He backs away. And what does Paul do? He gets in his face and Galatians 2.20, the verse we read, 2.21, the verse we read earlier, is in the context of his conversation with Peter. He's like, you are living hypocritically. We have been crucified with Christ, Peter. We no longer live. The life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter, are you living as if that's necessary and the only thing you need? And Peter repented. He changed. So Paul preaches the gospel to the church in Galatia. He preaches the gospel to Peter, and he's going to call us to preach the gospel to ourselves. You are saved not by your works. You are loved not whether you're righteous or unrighteous. In fact, you were loved when you were unrighteous, when you were dead in sin. That's when Christ came to save. And if that's true, then hypocrisy has no place. There is no place for that in that context. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul goes on to talk a little bit about allowing evaluation of the heart. And he'll also say that in 2 Corinthians 13. He'll say basically, check yourself to see if you are blameless and pure. And when he talks about that idea of being blameless and pure, it comes from this Greek idea of taking a statue into the sun. All right, so here's an ancient marble statue. And one of the things that certain statue makers would do is they would fill in the cracks with wax so that it looks better than it really is, and then they could sell it. But in order to reveal the wax, a, a, a smart art dealer would take the statue and bring it into the bright light of the sun because what's going to be revealed? Every single little fault and crack. And so Paul says this, you are blameless and pure in Christ, but, but live as if you're blameless and pure. Allow yourself to evaluate your motivations. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you saying what you're saying? Why are you tempted to deceive those around you about where you really are in life? And let other people have that evaluative power on your life too. So he says to the Philippians in chapter one, you know, work the gospel back and forth between you. Allow the truth to change you, but know where your hypocrisy is. Because let's be honest, all of us present certain things about our lives that are better than they really are. And that's a potential danger. So Paul's like, allow authentic evaluation and let that judgment come from God and from those around you that, you that you care about. Last but not least, when and not if, when we recognize hypocrisy, are we quick to repent? Paul is on his way to kill Christians in Acts chapter 9, and then suddenly Jesus shows up and says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And notice what Paul says. Who are you? Lord, thank you. Here's what he's saying. You're on the side of truth. Whoever you are, I'm submitting to this because this is obviously bigger than me. And for Paul, that meant a 180 degree turn and alienating himself from everybody he'd ever known and associating himself with a group of people who were the scum of the earth five seconds before. That's the change it took in Paul. Now, what did it require, right? He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. And Jesus comes and, and, in a sense, punches him off of his horse and blinds him. That's what it took for Paul to see. What will it take for us to see? See, for me, I'm hoping for less. I'm hoping I'm a little more open to the possibility that I'm not standing in the right place. I don't want to be punched off of a horse and blinded like Paul was required to go through. But what does Paul do as soon as he recognizes that he's a hypocrite? 
he turns and he repents. He turns and he repents. And not just once, his entire Christian life. And what are we called to do? Repent and turn, not just once, our entire Christian life. And so for me, one of the things that's, that's changing is now I have kids that are recognizing hypocrisy. Little kids, they don't know, you know? You can tell them whatever you want. They're never going to know. Now my kids are like, Dad, you say not to be on your, our phones. We don't even have phones. You say not to be on our whatever. And I'm like, go to bed. They're like, that's not right. I'm like, true. When those moments strike us and we recognize that I'm operating falsely, let's be careful not to make excuses. Maybe we should just repent and be like, you know what, kid, you're right. I'm sorry. I am not living the way I'm telling you to live. And let's work together. So my last thought, God loves Pharisees and hates hypocrisy. I found this specific picture because one of the groups of people that were present in the crucifixion that we don't think about a lot is there were Pharisees there and they were mocking him and they were trying to make his life even more miserable than it already was. That's why they were there. But Jesus hung on that cross for them too. He hung on that cross for them too because he loved them. And when he's with Simon the Pharisee at his house, he's super harsh with him. And when he preaches this sermon in Matthew 23, he's super harsh. But that harshness comes from love. And so if there's a reality that strikes you and it hurts and it feels harsh, I just want to just remind us the harshness of Christ comes from a place of love. And how do I know he loves me? It's more than just words. He hung on a cross for the Pharisees as much as he did for his apostles as much as he did for you and for me. And he hates the sin of hypocrisy because hypocrisy keeps you from seeing the reality of what Christ is doing. That's why he hates it so much. But he loves the Pharisees. And we have to be careful, right? Because we put everybody in a good guy, bad guy category. Pharisees are bad guys. Disciples are good guys. No. Pharisees and disciples are both villains. Jesus is the good guy who died to save them both. And he died to save me. And I, like I said, I identified the Pharisees way more than I thought I should. But it's encouraging to me to know that he loves the Pharisees. He loves self-righteous people. He hates the self-righteousness, but he loves them. And so if you are in that category, and again, some of us who've been in the church longer than others, there's a danger there for us. The love of Christ is the only thing that's going to change you. The humility of knowing that our king died to free us. I have nothing I have to stand on, nothing to give him because he already gave everything. And I just allow that reality to change who I see in myself. And that's the way the pharisaical attitudes die is when Christ comes in and says, I'm the king, give me the whole, give me the whole thing and we'll get to work. All right, let's pray. Lord, we can't change ourselves by ourselves. We just think about what Jesus instructed the disciples about that fig tree. By faith and by prayer, things happen. Because faith and prayer, trusting you and not ourselves, is recognizing the only change that's going to happen is going to come from you. And so, Lord, for those of us in here that have hypocrisy, some of us may not even see it. I pray you would show it to us and help us, Lord, to come to you for change. And for those of us that work with hypocrites, help us, Lord, to know how to interact in a way that is consistent with what Christ would do, with humility and grace. And we thank you, Lord, that your son came to die to accomplish these things that we never could on our own. In your name we pray.
Amen. You stand and join us.